This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 11, Trading 2020, Top Themes for the New Year, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, John Hill, Greg Anderson, Dan Belton, and Ben Reitzis from our FIC Macro Strategy team, along with Michael Gregory from BMO Economics to discuss and debate the top themes that will shape the markets in the year ahead. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. In today's podcast, we narrow our discussion and debate to a few big themes that will override all else in 2020. This includes the presidential election, its impact on the trade war, and resulting risks and ramifications for the markets that we cover. Let's start off with Ian Linging. Ian, give us a few of your thoughts on the trade war and the presidential election, what we should be expecting next year. Well, there's absolutely no question that the biggest issue that will be in the public's eye during 2020 will be the presidential election, and it has a lot of ramifications. One of the most obvious ramifications is a continuation of the trade war, and at least in my mind, whether or not the impact of the trade war has already effectively been baked into the cake. And by that, I mean there has been a fair amount of damage already done to business sentiment, both in the U.S. as well as abroad. And frankly, even the actions of the Fed have been designed to counteract some of the potential slowing for broader global growth that has resulted. The obvious question that then jumps out to me is whether or not the administration is going to attempt to use the trade deal as a cornerstone for prior successes or by not designing a successful end to the trade war ahead of the election, is Trump ultimately going to use the campaign stance that he needs to be elected to continue and finish the job? That's a good point, Ian. When you think about where we were just a few months ago when we thought that we basically would have to get a trade deal, we would get a trade deal because that was the marker of which the administration would declare victory, that that's not necessarily the case anymore. That having at least some minimal amount of a deal so that the trade war doesn't escalate further, but that doesn't necessarily de-escalate either, kind of works in the advantage of the administration in terms of, again, that wanting to be elected again. Now, it it is noteworthy that the impact on business confidence, which is the part that the Fed has tried to address, that policymakers around the world are trying to address, doesn't necessarily need a resolution of the trade war in order to, to be pacified. And I do think that as long as we get to this point where the trade war is not getting any worse, we all understand that it's going to be a post election conclusion to this, that the impact on the economy, quite frankly, may be kept to a very minimum. This is Ben Reitzes here. I think my my main thought here is how badly does Trump want to get reelected and, and, and are his policies really going to shape things up that way? And in order to get reelected, Trump probably wants to see 
a stronger stock market, a strong economy, a low unemployment rate. So in order to get those things, he probably needs to at least have some kind of trade peace, at least through the first half of the year. Things might get a little bit hotter in the second half of the year. That might change dynamics then. But peace is is probably necessary for him through the early part of the year. That enables a stronger economy. And then his reelection chances look much better from that point on. Michael, do you have any comments on that? I think that's a great point, Ben. And in terms of the the peace that one could garner from uh, the trade war, I do think it's simply not escalating further. I do think a minimum trade deal, which basically the parties agree to continue talking, the tariffs that were planned to go up on December 15th don't happen, the postponement of the additional five percentage points on top of the 25%, that too remains postponed. And and we just agree just to uh, keep talking. And I think that's all you basically need in order to minimize the headwind coming from trade. Now, will we get a tailwind? Sure, but I think you actually have to get a real deal done and remove that uncertainty to get that tailwind. That said, there's another area of trade policy which seems to be percolating up here in a positive way, and that is passage of the USMCA. And I do think if we can manage to get that done, and it does seem that that may be a nice way to kick off 2020 and actually getting this thing signed and put into law, that that may provide that spark that is an antidote to what we were seeing from that headwind coming from China. So if we're in a holding pattern on the China trade war, will that really be enough to turn around business investment and business spending? Or will everyone still just be in this holding pattern where we're subjected to headline risk coming from the trade war? Well, I do think if the trade war is in this freeze where it's not escalating or neither is it de-escalating, I think businesses, of course, would rather have it completely de-escalating. But if you get the USMCA providing a little bit of a spark and you have continued domestic demand, consumer spending, housing, continuing to mark some gains, then I do think that uh, you, you do get some stabilization on the capital spending front, if not a slight increase. Let's face it, we do have labor shortages across uh, many industries and that it's itself elicits business investment and in other capacities constraints. Well, I do think it would probably take more than just a phase one trade deal to get businesses bouncing back sharply in terms of a lot of their capital outlays. I do think we can still get advances as long as it does not escalate. The one thing that I would add to that is, while I certainly agree that the removal of an uncertainty, i.e. no longer escalating on the trade war front, would be net positive for risk assets, and it would certainly help the broader sentiment of economic optimism, both domestically and abroad, it's not necessarily binary per se. And by that, I mean it will take a very long time for us to transition back to a period of pre-Trump trade relations with our major trading partners in the U.S. In fact, I would argue that it would take more than a new president and probably several years if the U.S. even wanted to go that route. And because we're in a new world in terms of what the global trading landscape is going to look like, decision makers, particularly on the manufacturing side, are rightfully, at least in my opinion, taking the opportunity to see how this all plays out, see if an environment where the proverbial rules keep changing on the trade front is really an environment in which they want to be expanding. My intuition says probably not, but that doesn't mean that the consumer won't remain strong. And so the big uncertainty is 
whether or not business confidence has been hit hard enough to start undermining the labor market or if the consumer is going to continue apace. And implicitly, with 10-year yields trading solidly below 2%, I think there's a broader global macro issue driving the market rather than simply an incremental move in real GDP. And I think at this moment, it's helpful to try to put some numbers around this. I was reading the most recent ISM semi-annual report, and they asked both manufacturers and non-manufacturers, what was the primary reason that you adjusted your CapEx expectations for 2020? Only about 10% of both services and manufacturing respondents pointed to already implemented tariffs or trade policy uncertainty as the driving primary factor. Instead, 40%, by far the most popular answer, was the domestic U.S. economy. Now, what I struggle with here is how conflated are those two? Is weakness in the domestic economy because of underlying trade policy? But that's food for thought, if nothing else. John, you raised some really good points. And going back to the conversation a little bit earlier, if we get this period of temporary peace during the election, what does it imply for post-election? What does it imply for 2021? And how does the market or when does the market start to price something like this in? Margaret, if I could jump in here, I don't think you can price in post-election until you've dealt with the uncertainty of the election itself. And this election has a tremendous amount of uncertainty associated with it. The last one was extremely close, and I, I presume that this one will be extremely close when we get down to the final Democrat versus Trump. But we have uncertainty for the next six months because clear through the uh, Democratic convention in July, I don't know that we will know who the Democratic Party nominee is. I like to look at the uh, predicted futures side and, and the probabilities that futures traders give to different candidates. And there are six Democratic candidates who have a higher than 10% probability of winning the nomination, including Hillary Clinton, who I know is not a candidate. But that's how wide open the race is. And it may well come down to contested nomination in July. And so for, for the market to move past that and price in you know, what happens in 2021, probably the, the soonest that we could do that is August, if, if we knew the Democratic nominee and we knew that they were just flat out going to win or not. One of my biggest takeaways from the 2016 election, at least, was how willing the market was to move beyond the individual or beyond the candidate and trade the actual party rather than Trump. So in 2016, it was reflationary, it was risk on pro-business. And as I contemplate what 2020 might be, it's somewhat different because we know what a Trump presidency means for business. It means more of a trade war. It means more protectionism. So either a Trump victory or a typical Democratic White House might not be as pro-business as we would like to think, which really does put the emphasis on risk assets during those summer months. And if I could jump in, though, this is different in the respect that we don't know what the Democratic platform is really going to be because we've got candidates from different ends of the party, and it's just difficult to know where they're going to come together in terms of their policy mix. Greg, do you think that a Democratic administration would be meaningfully friendlier to China is the Democratic side of Congress right now against what Trump is doing when, when he's going up against China? No, I don't think the China policy would be meaningfully different. Perhaps some of the style and the tone and the rhetoric would be different. 
but the actual policy mix in terms of trying to push the U.S. away from being so dependent on China for components and for finished goods. No, I think that that is a fail complete. Point out that just over the last 24 months, China has evolved from the U.S.'s number one trade partner to number four behind Europe, Canada, and Mexico. And, you know, I think whoever is president in 2021, that evolution would continue. So it's an important risk, I guess, to keep in mind for everybody. We're all skeptical on on U.S.-China trade, but I think it's important to keep in mind that no matter who wins, that there is meaningful downside risk coming from those negotiations. Downside risk uh, for certain companies in the U.S. that have used China as an export platform and need to retool. Downside risk for companies and countries that have been feeding raw materials and components to China. But there are winners to that kind of new world as well. I think one of the biggest winners is Mexico. You have to think about if we finally get the USMCA passed and into law, the attraction of having a relatively inexpensive labor force to deal with some of the components and some of the source of production where there is the rule of law, where there is the well-established transportation links and things like that. So I do think that some of the transition we are going to see of a permanent nature will be away from China and towards Mexico. So we talked about the trade war and the presidential election next year with the most likely base case being some sort of a temporary peace with China as part of Trump's presidential election bid. However, regardless of who wins, we expect continued trade war escalation following the election. And let's talk a little bit about what this means for the Fed, our outlook for interest rates in the markets that we cover. I'll turn it over to Michael Gregory to give us a quick take on BMO Economics' base case, and then we'll open it up for discussion. I do think as far as the Fed's concerned, they're on hold indefinitely at this stage. I mean, they basically told us what it would take for them to change policy from where they are currently. Significant and persistent inflation would be the reason why they would attempt to tighten policy and a substantial reassessment of their outlook. A downgrade of the outlook would be uh, what would cause them to ease further. I think that is where the risks lie, quite frankly, that that we are in this period of, of a flat to lower interest rates indefinitely. And I think that's where all the things like the trade war and particularly what might happen from a policy perspective post-election, where, where the Fed is going to probably have to react to if, in fact, we do get some major new economic headwinds develop in the post-election period. But, you know, we can even see headwinds develop in the in the pre-election period, too. I mean, the Fed will act as the data change. And I do think that if we do get businesses simply not stabilizing their spending patterns, their hiring patterns, and making sure they continue growing, if what is in place already from the trade headwinds causes that to weaken further, then the Fed will adjust policy again, as they already have. And so I could easily see them potentially cutting rates even before the election. Well, one of the things that I would say it's important to keep in mind in framing how the Fed is going to behave in 2020 is we've spent a lot of time focusing on growth and real GDP. But if we look at how the Fed has changed their behavior recently, the growth profile in 2019 was reasonable, all things considered, and the Fed still decided to follow through with preemptive rate cuts. Now, obviously, we know that the bigger story was what was transpiring overseas and on the trade front. But 
Part of the message that the Fed has been effectively communicating is that they are actively attempting to change the way the market perceives their relationship with inflation. So it's not inconceivable that the growth profile could be relatively stable, slow and steady at a measured pace in 2020, but core inflation continues to underperform, and that in and of itself might be enough justification to get the Fed to move. That, especially in the context of the core inflation series that continues to be dominated by OER and shelter costs. The Fed is attempting to push against a proverbial string to some extent when they cut rates and the flow through to mortgage rates isn't sufficient to really change the tide in the housing market. One other key thing that I keep in mind, one framework I've found very helpful in the past couple years is after the large-scale tax reform we had, fiscal policy was acting as a tailwind. It therefore made sense for monetary policy to tighten to offset that impulse. Well, we're now in a structural headwind regime. And Michael, I really like the way that you phrase that these headwinds are going to persist. So therefore, if you're monetary policy and you're trying to offset fiscal policy to some extent, that means you maintain an at least slightly accommodative bias, and then you tweak how much accommodation is needed based off of how much those headwinds are ramped up or lowered. At the end of the day, the fact is overnight rates are set around 1.5%, 1.75%, whereas the Fed's assessment of what the longer-run neutral dot is is actually above here. So the Fed has cut rates back into a slightly accommodative stance in order to offset trade policy headwinds. It makes sense that we'd see that going forward, at least as long as these headwinds are restricting corporate investment, hiring, and general sentiment. So let's tie this all together with what our view is for rates, credit spreads, and foreign exchange markets briefly, starting off with the U.S. rates market. So at its essence, the market is currently in the process of trying to define where the center of that 100 to 125 basis point range is going to be in 10-year yields. If we look historically, that range tends to hold on a 12-month rolling average. So at this point, the biggest question is, is the center of that range at 2% or is the center of that range at 1.5%? I'm going to err on the side of assuming it's toward the lower bound, which indicates two important things. One is we could easily see 10-year yields back up north of 2%, even to 225. But it also indicates that if the economy does slow down in the coming year, year and a half, we could see record low 10-year yields set once again. And as has been one of our primary themes over the course of the last two or three quarters, we're continuing to anticipate the cyclical re-steepening of the twos-tens curve that will ultimately be bullish in nature and owe its impetus to a bigger move from the Fed. Ben Reitz is here. On the Canadian front, Canada is facing a very different picture than the U.S. at this point. The Bank of Canada has been reluctant to cut rates through 2019. You're probably going to get a similar story through much of 2020. One big driver of this is fiscal stimulus. The government of Canada, the federal government, has already announced that they're going to put through a $3 billion tax cut. We'll get the full details on that shortly. But more spending is also expected, something in the order of $10 billion. And 
Governor Pola stated in October that for every $5 billion in stimulus, he views that as equivalent to a 25 basis point rate cut. And so they've put the onus on the federal government to provide the stimulus that they haven't done. And so that likely means that the front end of Canada is going to stay very much range bound for a while yet. Uh, The longer end of the curve is likely going to be driven by global factors more so than anything domestic at this point. Even as the Canadian economy is very vulnerable given high household debt levels, the reality is that we're still very much in tune with the U.S. from a cyclical perspective. And, And so we don't think any significant economic downturn is going to occur in Canada on its own. And overall, that means that the rate curve, twos, tens, fives, thirties, will stay relatively range-bound, relatively flat. We just don't see the curve steepening much without the Bank of Canada coming into play here and cutting rates. That being said, the risks are entirely one way for Canada. If there is going to be a rate move in Canada, it is going to be down. And I think that that's really one of the key takeaways that we'd like to leave with you. If everybody is on hold with rates, Bank of Canada at 175 Fed in the 150 to 175 range, ECB and BOJ in sharply negative territory. That on hold period just begs the market into carry trades. And the carry trade being short euro and and long CAD or long Aussie in the FX world. And for that reason, you know, we like short euro on crosses. I think that that's an attractive play. So uh, EuroCAD and even EuroDollar is, is a significant carry trade and think that it probably will perform well just because exchange rates hold still through the first half of the year. And this is Dan Belton. And just to jump in on credit spreads, the Fed on hold should also be the removal of one more impetus for continued spread tightening, which we've seen has been the dominant narrative in 2019. Credit spreads, at least in the investment-grade corporate market, are at the tightest that they've been all year. We attribute that to not only an accommodative Fed, but supportive technicals and also yield grab environment that's been spurred on by supportive financial conditions. So with respect to technicals, we think that 2020 is going to be much of a continuation of 2019, where high-quality debt issuance should be net negative again. And in the investment-grade corporate space, we see a reduction in net supply from 300 billion to about 250 billion. So even if these are overly bullish, it's hard to see technicals really turning enough to knock spreads out of their historically tight levels. However, on the yield grab front, we see some potential for spread widening. And there's two main avenues that we see that could cause spreads to widen. The first is potential risk of recession. And even if this is not in our base case, it's hard to deny that there is an elevated risk of recession coming at some point in 2020. If the economy were to turn down, it's hard not to see spreads widening. And second, and more specifically related to corporate markets, is a deterioration in fundamentals. So further out the credit curve in the high yield space, we've seen an increase in downgrades in high yield that have come in the fourth quarter of this year. There's been cracks in leveraged loan markets that have have really made it into the popular press. Within IG specifically, there's been increased leverage and negative earnings growth and this growing stock of triple B rated debt as a proportion of the index. All of these factors have the potential to cause investors to demand higher spreads in compensation for these deteriorating fundamentals. Thanks, Dan Belton. To summarize, Volatility, uncertainty, and heightened risks are expected to continue into the new year. Thank you to all of our BMO experts 
and thank you for listening. We wish you a very warm and happy holiday season and a wonderful new year. This concludes Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 11, 2020 Outlook, Top Themes for the New Year. Please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics that you would like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 